today there's more democracy around you know frameworks so i think getting one solution to work that's the hard point there's definitely you know pockets inside production which you can integrate quickly into but covering all the production at once using uh, instrumentation and agents that's that's hard work uh, and we see organizations working hard to get it and i think it's a real pain point currently in the industry of you know apm is such a strong value distributed tracing clearly also yet so many people don't have it hello i'm martin thwaites i'm charity majors and i'm jessica kerr and you're listening to observability cast or ollicast for short a monthly series where we talk about how we can make production systems more observable, more reliable, and easy to maintain. Olicast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Olicast. That's at O11YCAST. I think uh, it's one of these uh, specific values that developers just can't live without. I mean, uh, if something is really clear about this specific market, uh, is that the value is super clear to people all across the stack. It's been kind of, you know, written into our bloodstream. And I think that's kind of what gets us excited about making products better there in this domain because uh, we, we feel immediate impact and immediate values on, you know, developers and how to actually work uh, with their stack, with the, with the applications they're trying to push out. So... That's the thing we kind of feel most connected to. Do you see a lot of uh, developers getting excited? Or is it more SREs or platform engineers? I think it's kind of a general question of what, you know, what, what a role plays an APM inside the organization. I think it's, um, it's very, very, very variant across the stack of, um, I mean, Specifically, we're a different APM. Ground cover is a bit of a different APM than, uh, you know, maybe legacy APMs in mean, the way we get installed into the organization. So the DevOps or the SRE are usually our gate into the organization since the installation is very infrastructure oriented as it, as it, as we're using EBPF. But basically the value of, of an APM just, you know, goes all across the R and D team from DevOps and SREs, which might be more interested in matrix to set SLOs and track them and, you know, eventually monitor the trends and behaviors of the system in general, but uh, eventually traces and logs and all the connection between traces, metrics and logs around an event would usually uh, interest dev. Uh, and I think if you want to eventually create an impact inside an organization, you would have to reach dev around troubleshooting while the DevOps are more interested in, you know, the day-to-day usability of the system to track behaviors and, you know, compare different versions where you deploy to production and stuff like that. Uh, so definitely seeing the system move around the R&D team, you know, across, um, across the different teams all the time. So do you see developers then as the, the growth part of what you're dealing with? Is that the, um, the, the new area that you're looking at? Is, is developers me being a developer rather than an SRE is something I get really excited about. Um, so, you know, what is the developers the new area or do you think that that's something that's already existed? Um, I think we're seeing, you know, kind of the, it's a cycle, you know, the, the cycles of life in development. Um, we've moved from kind of separating the infrastructure to DevOps and creating uh, positions like uh, production engineering to companies where you see a different approach of you know, engineering uh, or R&D or developers in general taking their full responsibility of the application from you know, writing the code, designing the metrics they're going to track, 
and deploying them to production. So I think as time passes, it's very clear that, uh, you know, like we've seen in security trends, that the developers should care about the way they're monitoring the application in production. They think about it as they write the code. They um, basically engage more with the way their application is going to be monitored. Uh, they get directions from the DevOps and SRE team sometimes to you know integrate one solution or another. So they're definitely a key part of everything that goes on in selecting the technologies that eventually is going to track and monitor the applications. So we feel that even if the solution uh, is super interesting to DevOps and SRE teams, uh, it still has to bring a lot of value to developers. So the entire organization is going to be convinced that it's the full package, that they can use it you know, all across and every team is going to enjoy it. If the developers eventually won't get any value, I see, I see, I see, I think it's a harder sell for an organization basically to fall in love with the solution. So DevOps and SRE get observability in, but for, for it to really land, for the marriage to really work out, uh, the developers need to care. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's how I see it. They still have a real impact on, on solutions. We even saw it in security with companies like Snick and things like that. Eventually, um, you don't want to force a solution inside the organization, no matter who's the stakeholder. Mm. Once it goes down all the way through the R&D and the developers really appreciate the value and see it as a part of their stack, it's going to propagate really fast inside the organization and succeed better. So that's the way we see ground cover also. Nice. Okay, so, so tell us about yourself. What's your background? How did you get this perspective? I'm Shahar Zulai. I'm the CEO of GroundCover. Most of my career has been around um, R&D leadership positions in different areas. I've, I've started in cybersecurity for many years. Uh, in my seven or eight last years before GroundCover was mostly around machine learning and AI. Before GroundCover, I was a team leader at Apple around specific machine learning applications in the watch and the phone. So uh, if you guys have any complaints, you can uh, ship them my way. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I think Ground Cover was kind of born from this background, from my background and our CTO's background, Yechezkel, which is uh, my co-founder. Basically, we, we both come from years of being on the user side and using solutions like uh, you know Datadog or open source solutions like Prometheus Grafana and stuff like that. Eventually, we've used them, uh, we've enjoyed them, we've seen the value in them, and also the pain points of where they uh, you know work. Uh, less as you would have expected or wanted or suffer from different integration or uh, or scale issues. So that's where ground cover was kind of originated from, you know, a firsthand uh, experience of, you know, being responsible for production and caring about uh, what you're going to wake up at night for. So <laughs> that's my bet. Okay. Which which particular problems is, is ground cover solving? So I think like the in general, the interobservability market, specifically in the APM, does uh, a very... Uh, clear trend, which uh, I think also we, we find concerning regardless of ground cover. And that's the, you know, we're, we've been taught for, you know, over a decade about, you know, the three pillars of observability and you get all the traces, logs and matrix and everybody can, you know, cite it by heart though and, and <laughs> tell you what, tell you what they need to collect. Uh, but when you actually get to real companies uh, and talk to real teams and real people that work working with real productions at, at scale, usually they don't have a full APM implemented. We see a lot of Datadog users even not activating the APM tier. You know, APMs today, I think, uh, I mean, I haven't used Honeycomb, for example, but I know other solutions which are really heavily um, uh, reliant on tiers, you know, from a login backend to custom metrics to infrastructure monitoring and all the way up to a full application monitoring tier, like an APM. So we see a lot of teams not activating that. 
Uh, and we feel that there's a gap in reaching the data, basically. A lot of teams don't have access to APM-grade data, uh, and we feel that it, it kind of originates from a few different points, but one of them is the integration. I mean, the industry has been uh, heavily working on solutions like auto-instrumentation. It started out with you know, Java agents where we could have had those and you know, if, uh, avoiding code changes and all the way to as much auto-instrumentation as you can in other solutions and in other languages, but eventually it still requires to be part of the development cycle in many different uh, aspects. This is one of the, the great mysteries of the universe, as far as I'm concerned. Can you define APM? <laughs> Asking the hard questions, yes. Yeah. It's a philosophical question, yeah. I think an APM basically is an offering uh, that tries to say, I know how to take logs, matrix, and traces and create uh, you know, an, uh, an experience in one place where I put them all together so you can get value from the different verticals uh, and in, and you know enhance the value of what you're seeing because if you're going to z- use a logging backend and, you know in one place and a dashboard for metrics in one place and just you know see spans flowing around in one place that's not an APM for me. I think an APM is trying to aggregate all this data into sophisticated kind of uh, user experience so you can troubleshoot better, uh, investigate performance better once you see them all together. So I think where I mean, Datadog or GrunCover, all the all solutions work great. I think Honeycomb, the same. It's around those kind of designed uh, experiences to provide logs, matrix, and traces in one place so you finally understand the full picture. Because a lot of the problems around application monitoring is, is that you have too much data. So if, if something is doesn't sit right in the same place with the same context, uh, things kind of lose meaning. And I think that's what great APM do. So for us, clearly, I mean, ground cover as part of what we're offering is a UI experience that we believe in that can help you focus and troubleshoot and stuff like that. But it's just just collecting the data. You, you've got some some great points in there. I think for for me, all of what you're describing there is around what observability is, because observability is about being able to um, ask those questions of your data. It's about being able to um, you don't really care about logging, you don't care about metrics, you don't care about events, you don't care about traces. What you care about is being able to ask questions. Exactly. You don't care about the individual bits of data. You don't care that one's going to one system or one's going to the other. That could be perfectly valid. What you need to be able to do is ask those questions. And that's where that user experience that you were talking about is really, really important. Because what it's about is being able to, from a user perspective, be able to ask those questions. And us as developers or SREs are those users in that context. And we need to be able to have that really, really good user experience Mm -hmm. to be able to do it. It's not about funky graphs. It's not about a big line graph that shows you things going up and up's good, is it? Or is up bad? (laughs) I don't know. Up and to the right. That's good. Up and to, oh, right. See, that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. I've been going down <laughs> to the left. Um, but, you know, it's, it's about that user experience. That's, to me, where observability comes into its own, is that having that really rich user experience that allows you to not care whether it's a metric, whether it's an event, whether it's a trace, because it really doesn't matter. If metrics give you all the data and allow you to ask those questions about your data, then great, it doesn't matter. If you need that context, as you say, bringing those together, then that's really good as well. But the idea of it being three pillars, the idea of that being 100% observability, 
that is the thing that I don't think really works. It's really about that user experience that you were talking about and focusing on that idea of allowing those developers, those engineers, SREs, whoever it is, to ask those questions of that data. I agree. Um, so you know, you touched on some really important bits there, but user experience was the big one for me because that's what brings good observability. I, I totally agree. So you mentioned that there's a lot of data and getting that into a presentable format that you can really get your fingers in and dig around in is one problem. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is getting it. Why do we have logs, metrics, and traces? Well, because we have logs. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, now GrabCover works with eBPF, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like a whole new source of what is happening in your software. Yeah, that's my big question. Please tell me what eBPF is, please. (laughs) I I have done so much research and tried to understand it, but I'm hoping that somebody like yourself whose um, career is now dedicated to it can give us some really succinct explanations. So I think like eBPF, like every great technology, it's not not new. It's been like, you know, uh, uh, making its way to our, um, you know, awareness for a long time. basically started out, you know, way back in the 90s as part of what we're currently experiencing as developers is kind of TCP dump and, and solutions around filtering network packets at high scale uh, using kernel abilities. But basically today it's it's a completely different kind of package from what it used to be when we, we started out with BPF, which is not the extended version of uh, UBPF. It, it's like we always had like Linux kernel namespaces, but containers are actually usable by people who aren't deep experts. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's it's also that, but I think eBPF made a significant uh, leap in capabilities that made it usable like it is today. When we started out with BPF a, a long time ago... And what is BPF? Let's... So uh, BPF is, uh, is a technology that started out uh, way back ago when we tried to uh, allow manipulation of uh, packet routing and basically trying to figure out to probe packets in, in, the, in the network using kernel abilities so it can be more efficient. You don't want to do all that in the user space. So kernel abilities. So we're talking about like plugging into the operating system and getting it to talk to us? True. EBPF basically allows you to run code inside a virtual machine or a sandbox inside the kernel. Uh, it's an ability or a safe ability to basically execute business logic inside the Linux kernel, which you would otherwise execute in the user space. Business logic inside the Linux kernel. Is that a good idea? <laughs> danger, danger, Will Robinson. <laughs> I mean, this this sounds like stored procedures in Oracle. Like. <laughs> yeah, but if you, I mean, it's a good idea when you compare it to the alternative. When you look at the alternative, basically what, what has been happening for like, you know, the past two decades or so, is that people would write kernel modules in order to manipulate the behaviors of the kernel to, to do things in high performance. Mm. Uh, they, would do, they would do it in, in load balancing, uh, in DDoS prevention, in a lot of different use cases where it made sense to say, I need a different version of the kernel to actually allow me to operate my, my logic, which is different at scale. Uh, it doesn't make sense since the development cycles in the kernel are so long. Uh, you would have to. You would force people to write kernel modules, which are totally unsafe. Basically, you can crash the operating system. And EBPF is, an, is the, the the correct alternative in, in the sense that you convert it to be in a kernel API, in, in if you wish. I mean, you say the kernel it now is, now has the abilities to verify the code, make sure it's safe, make sure it will execute on time, and doesn't reach any sensitive parts of the operating system. 
allowing the users to write code that can actually be mounted into the kernel without the risk of a kernel module. So it kind of makes the kernel adaptive or programmable in a sense. So instead of me having to go to the very close Linux community and trying to <laughs> you know, push my ID for the Linux kernel for the next five or six years, I can, as a, as a user, make the kernel programmable for my needs, my specific needs, right now with eVPF. There's limitations. There's Because it won't let you break exactly. nearly as many things as changing kernel code would let you break. It would give me the superpowers of being in the kernel, being visible to the user space, being visible to you know kernel uh, abilities and running in high performance, but it won't let me access everything, uh, access specific memory segments of, of the operating system. Ah, enabling constraints. Yeah. Uh, the eBPF verifier is a major part of eBPF, and it, it's basically the parts that's going to check your software, make sure that you run it, that it's run safely and smoothly. And once you pass that gatekeeper, your program runs inside the kernel, but you're, you you can be safe and sound to know that it's running uh, and it's not going to crash what you're doing. And we see that we see eBPF being implemented in security, in networking. I mean, in many different verticals inside the industry, so it's definitely catching fire really, really quickly. I think it's a, it's a proof point that eBPF can be definitely used for many different things in production. Including observability. Yeah. Including observability. And I think that's uh, that's a major leap from, from for what developers were used to doing. I mean, eventually you used to work hard inside your code as you know the maintainer of the code, basically, to integrate monitoring pieces of code into your uh, stack. It would be either by you know using Java agents where you could or by integrating an actual package into an actual SDK into your code, instrumenting the code in different depths compared, you know, based based on the different language you're working on, to actually allow the monitoring system to sample the application. What EVPF is saying is you don't need to do that. We can run out of band outside the application, but inside the kernel and be able to observe basically what the application is doing, how it is using the networking stack, how it is using the file system, how it's using, you know, the different resources the kernel eventually you know, maintains, so you can see the APIs applicationers are using. You can profile the application for using eBPF. You can do a lot of different stuff that would otherwise require deep integration with the application, uh, and that's a major enabler, specifically in Kubernetes environments. So you got so you got some interesting things there. One of the things that I'm really pushing for at the moment is easy mode. You know, the the idea that um, how do we get developers and engineers to start thinking about these things is, well, we make it easy. We make it so that they don't have I to think, do um, like For example, when you look at a Kubernetes modern environment in that sense, if I mean, if before you would be working with a monolith kind of solutions based on Java or, you know, whatever, there was a single application running on top of, uh, you know, of a machine, basically. So... You could have said that you know integration is of of an SDK or a Java agent or whatever isn't such a hard work, and there's not too much to gain with you know going out of band for the application because it's one application running on one machine. But today, I mean, it's very clear that the amplification of the value is is super strong. You would run an agent on one node of a Kubernetes cluster, and on top there would be you know 100 different containers running you know five different types of uh, services in reading five different languages. That's a major uh, amplifier of what you can do because suddenly you can observe all that with one touch. So you don't have to go to those different five R&D teams, coordinate them to actually you know, install or redeploy the app differently so they can actually uh, get the, the monitoring capabilities. And from an organization perspective, it will re- require so much less effort, so much less you know, coordination to just get 
get the value, basically. So Kubernetes gives us the power to like plug observability tools using eBPF like underneath all the different applications and all the different languages? Yeah, so I think that's the kind of major uh, amplification of what eBPF can do. Because if you look again, as we used to have, you know, in monolith systems, if you have one machine running one process, say of a Java application, of a monolith application, then it's really clear that, uh, I mean, eBPF is, is nice, but compared to, you know, a Java agent or an instrumentation inside the code, uh, it's, it's not that of a difference. I mean, you can say, let's work hard, integrate stuff into the code and, and, and get it done. But once you look, you move to Kubernetes and there's, you know, the infrastructure is basically running so many applications on top using, you know, using containers on top. So basically, once you run an agent in the in each of the nodes in the cluster, you suddenly see from that eBPF agent all the containers running on top and you can observe them instantly. So it makes you, it gives you the ability basically to see, you know, the 100 containers running on that node from the five or six different languages running on top without being integrated into each of those different applications. And that's a major uh, jump, not just technically, but also organization from organization perspective. You don't have to coordinate with the different R&D teams, be part of the R&D you know, development cycle to just make sure that everybody is on the same line regarding integrating you know, the observability vendor into their stack. It allows you to kind of decouple the observability from the R&D cycle ah. and use one guy inside a big organization to deploy you across the entire production. That's a major time-to-value difference, uh, and it allows people to experience an APM much faster and make it much less pre-planned and much less tied to what they are used to actually doing as part of their, uh, you know, R and D development cycles, at, at, uh, which causes you know long time-to-value, basically. Yeah, you don't want to have to wait for every development team. True. So, how how does this interact with? Developers who need to integrate with their own um, platform. So, you know, the if I'm writing a microservice, I know where the important bits are in my microservice. Mm-hmm. I know you have the business logic exactly, and, and like the account ID and the the fields that you're making decisions on, which eBPF is not going to have access to because it's at the operating system level. Yeah, you know, you've got algorithms that they change the performance of that algorithm based on the inputs that come in with that algorithm. Maybe if we we pass in a six into it, it, it goes and takes ten minutes. Whereas if you pass in a one, then it only takes twenty seconds. You want to know whether it's the um, people with a long name that are the ones that are the problem. How does eBPF solve for that? How does it integrate with that? So I think um, the, the question. It, we, I have two answers. One is that eBPF doesn't solve that. I think it's a general question for what is an APM. Uh, and I think any APM is exactly uh, not the place where you can cover custom metrics. Basically, eventually, I mean, APM is trying to create all the different application metrics out of the box that, that should be used, like golden signals, you know, error rates, through, uh, throughputs, and stuff like that, that should latencies that should be used for tracking SLOs and high-level stuff. But there's always going to be that business logic which is very specific to what you're trying to achieve that has to be defined by the developer. Right, right. But that can hang off of the framework that's created underneath. Yeah. So we definitely we definitely think that collecting custom metrics is super important in, in one place. Uh, we definitely see the the, the the you know the place of ground cover to collect those custom metrics which are not out of the box which are created by you know the developers and eventually combine them in one place with the metrics that we create out of the box for them without them having to do anything. It's definitely a critical piece of the puzzle. I'm just saying that 
you know, in every organization, there's always going to be a different business logic, which can be critical for scale, can be critical for performance investigation. So it's definitely important. On the other hand, regardless of EPF, I think what Ground Cover does really interestingly, uh, and, you know, what APMs usually try to do, basically we, we distribute the way the observability is being collected. So our, the agent is, is, is doing a lot of the data crunching on the fly so we can reduce data volumes before, it's, before they even leave the node or being shipped outside the cluster. So eventually create a, more, a much more cost-effective experience. By doing that, we're choosing specific uh, you know, verticals inside production, for example, like the Golden Signals, to learn distributions inside the actual agent. So, and, and we use them to sample raw data. So for example, Marty, to your question, we will definitely sample the high latency requests, you know, the, the runner's requests. We'll definitely sample the high payload requests and eventually use smart capturing rather than, you know, random sampling to showcase the different collage of examples that eventually depict the problems or, you know, uh, anomalies basically in production based on detailed raw examples. I think that's, that's a major duty from an APM, you know, pinpointing the things you should maybe start to look at, to look at in, in order to investigate. And on the other hand, we would create all the metrics that we'd expect from an APM without storing all the raw data that we eventually try to, which we, which we eventually use to create them, which is also a major boost in cost effectiveness. So if you're looking at a you know, P50 metric over time, you probably don't want to store all the spans that created it, but you do want to see the spans that you should care about, like the examples that you uh, eventually mentioned which are critical for investigation. I think context is the really important thing. You know, the the context of those things and coming back to what you were alluding to really early on um, when we were talking is this idea of correlation, the idea of different bits of data providing more and more context. And I think that's that's really key to the whole observability concept is this idea of more and more context whether it's um, the request data, whether it's the response data, whether it's things that are within that stack. And you know, I care more about my individual application than I do about the landscape, being from a developer background. And that's where my questions come from, because to me, this is about um, my individual application. And I really want to know what's happening in my individual application and the things that affect my individual application. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it sounds, um, from what you're talking about, around eBPF being more holistic, which is really important as well, is being able to see how a system reacts rather than an individual service or application. I mean, we will definitely be able to pinpoint just as you know, every APM instrumented from the code would do, pinpoint the different you know, services running inside the cluster, what, what each of them is doing, the granularity of the data that is being collected by ground cover is, is very, very deep. Uh, I think that the major uh, difference in what eBPF does is that it's not limited to the applications you're writing and shipping to production. You can look at it also from this angle. Every production today has, you know, third-party components, right? You have different web servers and proxies and, you know, all different stuff running in the cluster, which are usually open source stack solutions and stuff like that, that you integrate into production. You usually don't instrument them. You usually don't have the visibility of, you know, what's going on with them like you have in specific cherry-picked services that you uh, integrate your observability stack into. eBPF is kind of agnostic to that. I mean, uh, everything is equal from that sense to the eBPF agent. We can track the Kubernetes control plane alongside your application and see, you know, uh, packets from, flowing from your pod into Istio, say, for example, and, and back, because it doesn't really matter. 
you, you don't have to instrument the istiopod for us to, fit, to see the, the traffic trans, transiting through the istiopod and telling you it took that much time for the request to pass through that service. So EBPF is also really holistic in a, in a good way of saying all production components are equal. We see everything. It doesn't matter the language it was written on. It doesn't matter if it's your code or not, which is an enabler. Are you able to tie that information in with the the wider context of a customer experience of a request taking a long time? Mm-hmm. Like, are you able to propagate trace IDs and and parent spans and structure the eBPF uh, information in with with the application level information? Definitely, I mean, great question. Definitely, one of the gaps of eBPF is distributed tracing. Mm. But I think, that, I mean, distributed tracing of seeing a request, you know, propagate through the different microservices and so on. But for example, we do know how to build a full dependency map between all the services to see the protocols they're using and the error rates on each of these connections. Our mission is to turn observability to be practical. I mean, distributed tracing has a lot of respect. I think that uh, it's definitely a killer feature in many cases. And yet, what we're trying to say is that so many developers don't have access to this data for so many reasons, from cost to integration, that creating you know the 90% value of just show me the spans flowing between all the different services, cluster them into issues, show me the error rates between you know microservice A and microservice B on this specific protocol, this specific URL, and so on. Maybe without being sure in 100% of the propagation between the different uh, microservices inside the cluster, for me, it's 90% of the value in you know 5% of the time or the cost. And I think that's what we're trying to say. I mean, there's, there's so many teams that don't have access to distributed tracing that it doesn't make sense to fight for that feature in our perspective right now. EBPF is going to solve it. We believe it's going to be solvable. We, are, we already have uh, you know been experimenting with it in ground cover and different frameworks. We know how uh, to solve it in, in specific cases. But solving it, solving it for all the frameworks is going to take a while. It's not an easy task. If people propagate, uh, you know, trace ID inside uh, the different uh, requests that they're using, if they're implemented it using custom uh, propagation or open telemetry instrumentation, we will definitely know how to pick that up and use that. Someday. No, right now we know how to pick right it now. up. Yeah, we're okay. not showing it yet in the UI, but it's something that we're releasing soon. But it's definitely something that uh, we're not trying to deliver out of, out of the box. We're saying there's enough value uh, without distributed tracing that you probably don't have right now. And eBPF is a way to get it fully accessible without all the hard work. And for big organizations, that can be a major difference. I mean, I, you probably see from your end how, how much time it takes organizations to implement open telemetry. And I think that pain is, that pain is real. Right. You know? it, they need to do it, but they need to be able to do it gradually. Yeah on the schedules of the different development teams. And uh, observability can't wait for all of that to finish before it's useful. True. And I think that uh, it takes a lot of time. And, and wherever something is complex, it will always uh, you know, end up also creating poor coverage. Because if something is complex, then you would have said, OK, so let's start with covering uh, you know, this specific service using OpenTelemetry. We don't have time to you know." We don't have time or desire to touch that legacy code, right? I'm not going to open it up for to instrument it with open telemetry right now. So, so leave it aside. We're not going to touch that. Yeah, it's different if all your microservices are in Java on Kubernetes. Then it's just as easy. Right. If you can throw the Java agent in with a single operator. True. Just to be clear. Same with .NET. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Love that, man, Martin. Yeah, uh, true. So, so th- there are specific use cases, very homogeneous use cases, as you say, of Java and .NET, right. where there's definitely advantages to you know previous out of band practices like Java agents. So definitely, it's definitely going to work, and I think it's, it works great. But in a heterogeneous kind of environment where you have GoLang and Node and Python, I mean, every company is really heterogeneous. I mean, Java shops today. Are still it still exists, but when, when you come to modern companies, you see a much more diverse environment. And today, there's more democracy around you know frameworks. Developers and teams choose their technology. It's very common. You see that in data science compared to you know backend development, teams choose different frameworks to work with. So I think getting one solution to work that's the hard point. There's definitely you know pockets inside production which you can integrate quickly into, but covering all the production at once. Using uh, instrumentation and agents, that's that's hard work. Uh, and we see organizations working hard to get it. And I, I think it's a real pain point currently in the industry of, you know, APM is such a strong value. Distributed tracing, clearly also, uh, yet so many people don't have it. I, I completely understand the reticence for um, that amount of work. What I would say is that that's something that's been tackled. You know, the open telemetry community has recognized that um, some of the gaps are around the easy mode stuff. Like there are lots and lots of low-hanging fruit that we can do with distributed tracing, um, with agents, as Jess was suggesting. There's also a lot of the, um, as um, people who know me will say, I'm Martin 10 lines of code, um, .NET, because <laughs> I, I try to make everything around 10 lines of code um, because it can be really easy to do. And the value that you get from that can be, in my opinion, a lot higher than being able to get infrastructure metrics and being able to see um, low-level I.O. and that kind of stuff because it's about context. But we can work on it from both sides. Yes. I, I think maybe maybe that's uh, something which uh, we need to touch on and that's what eBPF eventually provides from an observability perspective. It's definitely not infrastructure metrics and you know network I.O.s. Uh, you, you see you know, full APIs, payloads that we collect. We collect Kubernetes events and attach them to these payloads. We, uh, you know, measure metrics which are application grade, like, you know, error rates per status code and stuff like that. Everything you would expect from an APM and clearly uh, supported today in Honeycomb and other solutions. And and you still get this value without, distrib- without full distributed tracing. You still get this very, very, you know, deep and detailed application value without touching the code. And I think that's, um, you know, even though 10 lines of code are definitely uh, something I agree with you fully. If you can do it, uh, you should. But eventually, reality or practicality is a bit... Uh, Ten far. lines of code in 200 apps is non-trivial. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I think there, there's always gaps around that, and there's always will be. So I, am, I think that there's definitely a really, really interesting enabler in that. And, and we see other observability companies you know, moving into MVPF as a sensor, because it can definitely open up a lot of um, you know, unseen parts in production that developers or teams just don't touch that that easily or you know uh, go through that, that instrumentation journey yeah I think we're all on the same bandwagon really around this idea of we need better information about our systems we need the outputs of our applications to be better queryable we need that um, output to be more contextual we need more data about those things whether that comes from ebpf whether it comes from people amending their code that's really immaterial I agree. Um, 
it's all about how do we get that thing in easy, how do we get it in fast, and how do we get the output and the visibility of that and that user experience of people getting the answers to their questions in the fastest possible way. So, you know, whether it's eBPF or whether it's um, using distributed tracing in your applications, what's interesting to me is how do we bring those two things together? So how do we make it so that, yes, I can, as a developer, say, these are interesting parts of my code. I would like these interesting parts of my code to be part of that distributed trace that I've just been able to do by adding the eBPF agent from ground cover or whomever to say, right, you gathered all of that other information, but I'd also like this extra bit of information because this is really important to me. Like, as just mentioned, a user ID, for instance. Mm-hmm. The user ID on one system is not the user ID on another system. It might be account ID that's important to you. And True. those are the things that are the, the thing for me about how do we bring, whether it's open telemetry or something else, but how do we bring those two things together so that we have that ultimate context that we can ask a really, really obscure question um, that you really didn't know that you were going to ask. And you know, one of the things that comes up a lot is, oh, it's, this problem only affects iOS 14 users who are living in Norway, um, maybe using the French language pack. You know, <laughs> that, that really obscure question that you didn't know that you needed to ask. Whether it's through eBPF or not, that's the thing that we need to get to. And I think there's this idea about how do we bring open telemetry and um, the stuff around eBPF, how do we take those two data sources and bring those two together in one system or one context? That's where I think we're going to get the really big adoption levels. I agree, and I think uh, it's definitely going to go there. I mean, currently, um, even even if we look at ground cover, we're not saying that code instrumentation is uh, something you shouldn't do. We're just saying it creates a lot of problems and it's hard, and sometimes the time to value there is really uh, is really long. You shouldn't have to start with it. Yeah, but eventually, I mean, there's specific value that you will eventually have to touch code to get. I fully agree with that. And I think EBPF and code instrumentation, even in the open telemetry project in the future, will probably work hand in hand. Yeah. Because there's so much that you can get from each. Yeah. And each makes the other more valuable. Yeah. I think APMs today are kind of binary in that sense. I mean, you either instrumented the code all the way through and you get like, you know, application metrics or nothing. Uh, and there's there's a middle ground of saying you might have not have instrumented your code all the way through, but for just, you know, use the EBPF agent and get so much data on the applications. If you want to get much, much more detailed about specific use cases in the code, go ahead, you know, instrument open telemetry and, and cherry pick the parts in your code that you want to instrument. If you could like, whisper something in the ear of millions of developers and SREs and project leaders and managers and executives, like while they're sleeping and highly susceptible, (laughs) uh, what would you plan? Just to be clear, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) That would be creepy. But but if you could, if, if you were the tooth fairy and you could whisper something in their ear, what would you plant in their minds? I think that uh, eBPF is uh, definitely going through a major shift. And I think that also, you know, cost reduction inside uh, full-blown APMs is something that's going through a major shift we see it in the market. I think ground cover is a really interesting solution. Maybe, you know, a first of many solutions trying to show what can be done with eBPF for application monitoring and how we can use smart capturing inside agents to reduce costs. And I would tell them we have an amazing and generous free tier and we, we totally uh, you know, welcome feedback from the developer community and we'd love to see people try it out and, and tell us if it helped them compared to the stacks they're using and the solutions they're using today. Great. So everyone's going to wake up with a toothache and a weird <laughs> craving for eBPF. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a Tuesday night to me. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. I had a great time. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.